When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to the history of evangelicals in politics, the Obama era. This is episode eight, The Democrats' Search for Faith. I'm John Fia. On May 1st, 2003, President George W. Bush made some remarks before faith leaders gathered at the White House to observe the National Day of Prayer. As he spoke, American soldiers were in their 42nd day of fighting to liberate Iraq from Saddam Hussein and destroy weapons of mass destruction that the Bush administration believed were hidden somewhere in the country. The president said that Americans were praying for the protection of innocent life in Iraq. In a comment that probably misrepresented most of the people who made up Bush's political base, he said that the men and women of the nation prayed that war would not be necessary in Iraq. I don't think the fans of country music star Toby Keith's song, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, were praying that the Bush administration would take a restrained approach to the Hussein regime. The song included this line, we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way. But I digress. Now, Bush said the mission was accomplished. It was time to pray for a just and lasting peace. Bush reminded his audience that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had done something similar. In a radio address on D-Day, Roosevelt prayed for God's blessing on America's mission to set free a suffering humanity in Europe. Later in the day, Bush put on an Air Force flight suit and climbed into a Lockheed S-3 Viking jet fighter named Navy One. The plane landed on the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, docked just off the coast of San Diego after spending nearly a year in the Persian Gulf. Bush delivered a speech announcing the end of major combat operations in Iraq. A mission accomplished banner hung in the background as he blended the Old Testament with the U.S. military's liberation of the Iraqi people. 
you're defending your country and protecting the innocent from harm, he said. And wherever you go, you carry a message of hope, a message that is ancient and ever new. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, to the captive, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. In Bush's worldview, the United States was the great liberator, and God was always on the side of liberating the captives, whether it be Germans under Hitler or Iraqis under Hussein. The United States was doing the will of God. Americans loved the mission accomplished speech. The following week, the Gallup organization put Bush's approval rating at 70%. This was down from his 90% approval rating in the days following September 11th, but it was still pretty good. As the United States headed into the next presidential election cycle, Bush was riding high and conservative evangelicals were lined up solidly behind him. In January 2004, religion writer Mark Pinsky noted that the Republicans were rolling up their sleeves, passing the collection plate, raising money in church social halls for voter registration, and producing Christian scorecards rating candidates on their positions on key cultural issues such as abortion and homosexuality. There was no doubt that Bush would be the GOP's nominee again. The Arizona Daily Star did a story on the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit organization based in Tucson that had recently hosted a virtual prayer meeting attended by three million people, mostly evangelical Christians. One member of the team said that almost all of those praying wanted Bush to be reelected, but also stressed that they would never pray for him to win. By the way, it was unclear whether this was a theological statement about praying for electoral victories or a statement about the fact that they were a nonprofit organization and thus forbidden by law to endorse a candidate. The prayer team attracted some prominent evangelicals to its advisory board, including Phoenix Sun CEO Jerry Colangelo, Promise Keepers founder and former University of Colorado football coach Bill McCartney, and musicians John Tesh and Michael W. Smith. Its membership had doubled over the past year. Though the prayer team claimed that they were not specifically praying for a Bush victory, televangelist and 1988 presidential candidate Pat Robertson simply announced that God told him the president would get a second term. On January 2nd, 2004, he said on his 700 Club program that Bush would win in a walk I really believe I'm hearing from the Lord that it's going to be a blowout election in 2004, Robertson told his evangelical viewers. The Lord has just blessed him. I mean, he could make terrible mistakes and come out of it. It doesn't make any difference what he does, good or bad. God picks him up because he's a man of prayer and God is blessing him. Barry Lynn of the American Separation of Church and State joke that Robertson got God confused with Bush's campaign advisor, a political wizard who saw evangelicals as key to the president's reelection in November. Maybe Pat got a message from Karl Rove and thought it was from God, Lynn quipped. Of course, the chance of a Democratic candidate making any kind of a dent in Bush's support among the evangelical faithful was slim at best. 
Richard Sizek, the vice president for governmental affairs at the National Association of Evangelicals, said that Democrats are generally in a fog about how to reach evangelical voters. Absent authenticity, everything else is simply a contrivance that won't work, he said. Democrats have to be able to demonstrate a personal spirituality that isn't contrived. Jim Wallace, the leader of the evangelical left community Sojourners, was disappointed with the reach of Bush's faith-based initiatives, calling them more symbolic than substantial. But he also knew the Democrats couldn't do any better. They stumble over themselves to assure voters that while they may be people of faith, they won't allow their religious beliefs to affect their political views, Wallace said. A kind of liberal religion void of any doctrinal content, the stuff preached every Sunday in declining mainline denominations, was not the answer. I agree that liberal religion is in decline, Wallace told Pinsky, but I don't agree that social justice is in decline in the church. If you don't have a real Bible-based, Jesus-centered faith, then all you have is upper-middle-class, affluent Americans who are not going to be your primary constituency for social justice. Pinsky wrote that left-wing efforts at political mobilization, where they exist at all, seem puny, aged, and marginalized. After decades of riding social movements such as civil rights, the left splintered and now seems unable to regroup. A letter to the editor of the Tampa Bay Times urged Democrats to heed the words of the Old Testament prophet Micah when he urged the people of Israel to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The Bush Republican Party, this reader claimed, had a non-Micah attitude defined by mean-spiritedness and arrogance. Yet, despite all of this, the Democrats seemed incapable of seizing the moral high ground. God must be wondering, he wrote, what in heaven's name the Democrats are waiting for. By the end of 2003, nine Democratic candidates were in the race to replace Bush. None of them seemed ready to reach what religion pollster John Green called the swing evangelicals. He described these swing evangelicals as bothered by the rhetorical style of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. They were pro-life, but not decisively so, white and suburban. The swing evangelicals attended megachurches, sent their children to public schools, and lived in the South, Midwest, and Northwest. They voted for Jimmy Carter in 1976 and pulled the lever for Bill Clinton in 1992 and 1996. The only Democrat with even the slightest possibility of appealing to white evangelical voters was Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman. Al Gore's running mate in the controversial election of 2000 was a practicing Jew who did not campaign during the Sabbath. Moreover, his overt support for George Bush's war in Iraq distinguished him from his rivals, some of whom reluctantly supported the war and others who opposed it. Lieberman regularly quoted the Bible on the campaign trail, spoke openly about the need to regulate internet pornography, 
and claimed that he was the only Democratic candidate for president who could stand toe to toe with Bush in a debate on values. Republicans seem to suggest they have a monopoly on values in public life, Lieberman told the New York Times, but they don't. We Democrats don't either, but we care about values, including faith-based values. When Jim Wallace chided the Democratic field for failing to connect their religious beliefs to their politics, he said that Lieberman was the only exception. The Connecticut senator would have presented an interesting challenge to Bush, but his candidacy, as we will see in our next episode, never got off the ground among Democratic voters. General Wesley Clark, a Rhodes Scholar, retired U.S. Army general, and the Supreme Commander of the NATO forces in the late 1990s, had an eclectic religious background. His mother was a Methodist, and his father, who died when Clark was four, was Jewish. As a boy growing up in Arkansas, Clark attended Southern Baptist churches. He was a member of the Royal Ambassadors, a Southern Baptist mission education program for boys. He studied the Bible, and he attended both morning and evening services, often without his parents. Later, his wife Gertrude introduced him to Roman Catholicism during his years at Oxford University, and he converted while serving in Vietnam. Clark left the Catholic Church when his parish priest preached a pacifist Fourth of July homily, asserting that the United States should never have fought the Revolutionary War. Clark called it an outrageously political statement, adding that, I didn't feel like I deserved to be lambasted by the priest on the 4th of July. Clark never formally left Catholicism, but he and his family started attending Second Presbyterian Church in Little Rock, where he was attracted to the preaching of Pastor Stephen Carey Hancock, a graduate of Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Clark now described himself as a strong Christian and a Catholic who attends a Presbyterian church. Steve Waldman, the editor of the religious website BeliefNet, said if Clark won, he would be America's first seeker president, a prototypical modern American Christian who shops for his faith. Like Lieberman, Clark said that he would not let Republicans claim a monopoly on faith but it was unclear how his spiritual journey or religious convictions would shape or influence his policies as president. These were the kinds of things most evangelicals, whether they were on the Christian right with Robertson or on the Christian left with Wallace, were looking for in a candidate. In the early months of the campaign, Massachusetts Senator John Kerry, a Catholic, like to tout John F. Kennedy's September 1960 speech to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, in which Kennedy put to rest any fears that his Catholic faith might inform his work as President of the United States. In a December 2003 Democratic debate in New Hampshire, Kerry said the Bush administration was radical in the way it trampled upon the fine line between church and state. Many of us turn to God in our private moments, Kerry said, but we recognize that the beauty of America respects the divisions. Kerry often referred to America as a secular nation, 
hardly the kind of statement that would inspire evangelical voters, or for that matter, religious voters of any faith. Al Sharpton, a black civil rights activist who was ordained as a Pentecostal minister at the age of nine, often used religious themes in his campaigning. In fact, the New York Times wondered where Mr. Sharpton the preacher stops and Mr. Sharpton the candidate begins. As we saw in the previous episodes on Jeremiah Wright, the black church had a long tradition of integrating Christian faith and politics. But Sharpton's understanding of faith-based politics led him to embrace the defense of equal rights for gays and lesbians, a pro-choice position on abortion, and the defense of same-sex marriage. He was just a non-starter for white evangelicals. During the same New Hampshire debate that Carey talked about the separation of church and state, Sharpton said, as a minister, you can have a personal motivation of religion, but you should not try to act like your religion is something that dictates where people ought to go. I pray every day. I can assure you in my talks with God, he is not a registered member of the right wing of the Republican Party. The crowd in the Democratic-friendly audience loved it. Dennis Kucinich, the former mayor of Cleveland and a current member of the House of Representatives from Ohio's 10th Congressional District, claimed he was the only candidate who could bridge the country's divide over abortion. During his first three terms in Congress, Kucinich had a 95% rating from the National Right to Life Committee. In 2000, a spokesperson for the congressman said that he believed in the sanctity of life and that life begins at conception. But somewhere along the way, Kucinich became pro-choice. I've worked hard to make abortions less necessary through sex education and birth control, he told a televised audience in New Hampshire. But he had come to believe that this must be done in the context of protecting Roe v. Wade. Kucinich's liberal Catholicism led him to oppose the war in Iraq. He was the only candidate who voted against it in Congress and fight to protect life through prenatal care, postnatal care, child care, a living wage and universal health care. Kucinich's views may have been biblically and theologically consistent, but his brand of life based politics would not help him politically. And then there was John Edwards, a first-term U.S. Senator from North Carolina. He was getting some early traction because of his good looks, charisma, and the stories he told about growing up as the son of a mill worker. Edwards was baptized at the First Baptist Church of Robbins, North Carolina, as a teenager. And when his 16-year-old son died in an automobile accident, Edwards turned to the Bible and began attending services at a local Methodist church. As one aide put it, his faith came roaring back. But Edwards rarely talked about his religious beliefs on the campaign trail. Most people in this country do not want you to be beating them over their heads with your religious views, he said to an audience in Iowa. In 2001, he told the Winston-Salem Journal that he was a Christian who held his beliefs very, very deeply and described Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. But he also thought that personal belief should not influence national policy. Such a position led him to oppose Bush's faith-based initiative. 
Edwards received low grades from anti-abortion and Christian right groups. But the social justice-oriented ministry Bread for the World gave him a 100% rating. With the Iowa caucuses only a few weeks away, none of the candidates I just mentioned were leading the race for the Democratic nomination. That honor belonged to Howard Dean, the relatively unknown governor of Vermont. In our next episode, we will discuss Dean's rise and fall and the role that religious faith, or lack thereof, may have played in the process. Stay tuned. The History of Evangelicals in Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button.